Chapter 1 of the Boy Scouts Book of Campfire Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Monty Spanero. The Book of Campfire Stories. Chapter 1 Silverhorns by Henry Van Dyke. The railway station of Bathurst, New Brunswick, did not look particularly merry at two o'clock of a late September morning. There was an easterly haze driving in from the Baie de Chaleur, and the darkness was so saturated with chilly moisture that an honest downpour of rain would have been a relief. Two or three depressed and solemn travelers yawned in the waiting-room which smelled horribly of smoky lamps the telegraph instrument in the ticket office clicked spasmodically for a minute then relapsed into gloomy silence the imperturbable station-master was tipped back against the wall in a wooden armchair with his feet on the table and his mind sunk in an old christmas number of the cowboy magazine the express agent in the baggage room was going over his last week's waybills and accounts by the light of a lantern trying to locate an error and sighing profanely to himself as he failed to find it a wooden trunk tied with rope and a couple of dingy canvas bags a long box marked fresh fish rush and two large leather portmanteaus with brass fittings were piled on a luggage truck at the far end of the platform and beside the door in the waiting room sheltered by the overhanging eaves was a neat travelling bag with a gun case and a rod case leaning against the wall the wet rails glittered dimly northward and southward away into the night a few blurred lights glimmered from the village across the bridge dudley hemenway had observed all these features of the landscape with silent dissatisfaction as he smoked steadily up and down the platform waiting for the maritime express it is usually irritating to arrive at the station on time for a train on the intercolonial railway the arrangement is seldom mutual and sometimes yesterday's train does not come along until tomorrow afternoon moreover hemenway was inwardly discontented with the fact that he was coming out of the woods instead of going in coming out always made him a little unhappy whether his expedition had been successful or not he did not like the thought that it was all over and he had the very bad habit at such times of looking ahead and computing the slowly lessening number of chances that were left to him sixty odd years i may get that old and keep my shooting sight he said to himself that would give me a couple of dozen more camping trips it's a short allowance 
I wonder if any of them will be more lucky than this one. This makes the seventh year I've tried to get a moose, and the odd trick has gone against me every time. He tossed away the end of his cigar, which made a little trail of sparks as it rolled along the sopping platform, and turned to look in through the window of the ticket office. Something in the agent's attitude of literary absorption aggravated him. He went round to the door and opened it. Don't you know or care when this train is coming? Nope, said the man placidly. Well, when? What's the matter with her? When is she due? Due twenty minutes ago, said the man. Forty minutes late down in Mooncastle. Get here quarter three if nothing more happens. But what has happened? What's wrong with the beastly old road anyhow? Freight car skipped the track, said the man. Up in Charlo, everything hung up and kinda slow going till they get it glad cleared out. Don't know nothing more. With this conclusive statement, the agent seemed to disclaim all responsibility for the future of impatient travelers and dropped his mind back into the magazine again. Hemenway lit another cigar and went into the baggage room to smoke with the expressman. It was nearly three o'clock when they heard the far-off shriek of the whistle sounding up from the south. Then, after an interval, the puffing of the engine on the upgrade. Then the faint ringing of the rails, the increasing clatter of the train, and the blazing headlight of the locomotive swept slowly through the darkness past the platform. The engineer was leaning one arm with his head out of the cab window, and Hemingway nodded as he passed and hurried into the ticket office, where the tic-tac of conversation by telegraph was soon underway. The black porter of the Pullman car was looking out from the vestibule, and when he saw Hemingway, his sleepy face broadened into a grin reminiscent of many generous tips. Howdy, Mr. Henningray, he cried. Glad to see you again, sir. I got your section all right. Say, let me take your thing, sir. Train gon' stop here for some time yet, I reckon. Well, Charles, said Hemingway, you take my things and put them in the car. Careful with that gun now. The Lord only knows how much time this train's going to lose. I'm going ahead to see the engineer. Angus MacLeod was a grizzled-bearded Scotsman who had run a locomotive on the intercolonial ever since the road was cut through the woods from New Brunswick to Quebec. Everyone who traveled often on this line knew him, and all who knew him well enough to get below his rough crust liked him for his big heart. Hello, MacLeod, said Hemingway, as he came up through the darkness. Is that you? It's nine else, answered the engineer as he stepped down from his cab and shook hands warmly. Who are you, dude? And where you been murdering the innocent beasties now? Hey, you kit your moose yet? You been chasing him these money years. Not much murdering, replied Hemingway. I had a queer trip this time, away up in Nipisagit, with old MacDonald. You know him, don't you? 
Fan I do ken, Rob MacDonald, and a good mun he is. Who was it ye couldn't a slaughtered stacks o' moose wi' him helpin' ye? Did ye see nane at all? Plenty, and one with the biggest horns in the world. But that's a long story, and there's no time to tell it now. Time to burn, dud. Fear not o' oh, it. Twill be an hour for lines clear to Charlo and they let us out o' this. Come away up in the cab, mon, and tell me your tale. Tis cozy and warm in the cab, and I'm willing to listen to your bloody adventures. So the two men clambered up into the engineer's seat. Hemenway gave MacLeod his longest and strongest cigar and filled his own briarwood pipe. The rain was now pattering gently on the roof of the cab. The engine hissed and sizzled patiently in the darkness. The fragrant smoke curled steadily from the glowing tip of the cigar, but the pipe went out half a dozen times while Hemenway was telling the story of Silverhorns. We went up the river to the big rock, just below Indian Falls. There we made our main camp, intending to hunt on Forty-Two Mile Brook. There's quite a snarl of ponds and bogs at the head of it, and some burned-out hills over to the west, and it's very good moose country. But some other party had been there before us, and we saw nothing on the ponds except two cow moose and a calf. Coming out the next morning, we got a fine deer in the old wood road, a beautiful head, but I have plenty of deer heads already. Bony creature, said MacLeod. And what did you do with it when you'd murdered it? Ate it, of course. I gave the head to Billy Boucher, the cook. He said he could get ten dollars for it. The next evening we went to one of the ponds again, and Injun Pete tried to call a moose for me. But it was no good. MacDonald was disgusted with Pete's calling, and said it sounded like the bray of a wild ass of the wilderness. So the next day we gave up calling and traveled the woods over toward the burned hills. In the afternoon, MacDonald found an enormous moose track. He thought it looked like a bull's track, though he wasn't quite positive. But then, you know, a Scotsman never likes to commit himself except for theology or politics. Humph! grunted MacLeod in the darkness, showing that the strike had counted. Well, we went on, following the track through the woods for an hour or two. It was a terrible country, I tell you. Tamarack swamps, and spruce thickets, and windfalls, and all kinds of misery. Presently we came to a bare rock on the burned hillside, and there, across the ravine, we could see the animal laying down, just below the trunk of a big dead spruce that had fallen. The beast's head and neck were hidden by some bushes, but the foreshoulder and side were in clear view, about 250 yards away. MacDonald seemed to be inclined to think it was a bull, and thought I should shoot, so I shot, and knocked splinters out of the spruce log. We could see them fly. The animal got up quickly, and looked at us for a moment, shaking her long ears. Then the huge, unmitigated cow vamoosed into the bush. MacDonald remarked that it was a very fortunate shot, almost providential. And so it was, for if I had gone six inches lower, and the news got down to Bathurst, 
it would have cost me a fine of two hundred dollars. You did well, Doug, puffed MacDonald. Very well indeed. For the coup. After that, continued Hemenway, of course my nerve was a little shaken, and we went back to the main camp on the river to rest over Sunday. That was all right, wasn't it, Mac? Aye, replied MacDonald, who was a strict member of the Presbyterian Church at Moncton. That was surely a very safe thing to do, even a hunter, I'm thinking. Wouldn't a like to be breaking twa commandments on an aim day, the fourth and the sixth? Perhaps not. It's enough to break one, as you do, once a fortnight when you run the train into Riviere de Lut Sunday morning. How's that, you old Calvinist? Dudley, my son, said the engineer. Don't argue a point you cannot understand. There's gun a sufficient reason for the train, but ye'll never be claiming the moose hunting as a work of necessary mercy. No, no, of course not. But then, you see, barring Sundays, we felt that it was necessary to do all we could to get a moose, just for the sake of our reputation. Billy the cook was particularly strong about it. He said that an old woman in Bathurst, a kind of fortune teller, had told him that he was going to have la bonne chance on this trip he wanted to try his own mouth at calling he had never really done it before but he had been practicing all winter in imitation of a tame cow moose that johnny miru had and he thought he could make the sound ben bon so he got the birch bark horn and gave us a sample of his skill macdonald told me privately that it was nasa bad a deal better than pete's feckless bellow we agreed to leave the Indian to keep the camp after locking up the whiskey flask in my bag and take Billy with us on Monday to call at Hogan's Pond. It's a small bit of water, about three-quarters of a mile long and four hundred yards across, and four miles back from the river. There's no trail to it, but a blazed line runs part of the way, and for the rest you follow the little brook that runs out of the pond. We stuck up our shelter in a hollow of the brook, half a mile below the pond, so the smoke of our fire would not drift over the hunting grounds, and waited till five o'clock in the afternoon. Then we went up to the pond and took our position in a clump of birch trees at the edge of the open meadow that runs through the east shore. Just at dark, Billy began to call, and it was beautiful. You know how it goes. Three short grunts and a long, Oh, ah, oh, winding up with another grunt. It sounded lonelier than a lovesick hippopotamus on a housetop, and it rolled and echoed over the hills as if it would wake the dead. There was a fine moon shining, nearly full, and a few clouds floating by. Billy called and called and called again. The air grew colder and colder. Light frost on the meadow grass. Our teeth were chattering, fingers numb. Then we heard a bull give a short bawl, away off to the southward. Presently we could hear his horns knocking against the tree far up the hill. MacDonald whispered, He's coming! And Billy gave another call. But it was another bull that answered, Back at the north end of the pond and pretty soon we could hear him rapping along through the woods. Then everything was still. Kill again, 
said MacDonald. And Billy called again. This time the ball came from another bull on top of the western hill, straight across the pond. It seemed to start up the other two bulls, and we could hear all three of them thrashing along, as fast as they could come toward the pond. Call again, a wee one, said MacDonald, trembling with joy, and Billy called a little seducing call with two grunts at the end. Well, sir, at that time, a cow and a calf came rushing down through the brush not two hundred yards away from us, and the three bulls went splashing into the water, one at the south end, one at the north end, and one on the west shore. Land, whispered MacDonald's. It's a menagerie, did, said the engineer, getting down to open the furnace door a crack. This is mere than a murder you're coming at. It's a butchery, or else it's just a pack of lies. I give you my word, said Hemenway. It's all true as the catechism. But let me go on. The cow and the calf only stayed in the water a few minutes, and then ran back through the woods. But the three bulls went sloshing around in the pond as if they were looking for something. We could hear them, but we could not see any of them, for the sky had clouded up and they kept far away from us. Billy tried another short call, but they did not come any nearer. MacDonald whispered that he thought one in the south might be the biggest, and he might be feeding, and the other two might be young bulls, and they might be keeping away because they were afraid of the big one. This seemed reasonable, and I said that I was going to crawl around the meadow at the south end. Keep near a tree, said Mac, and I started. There was a deep trail, worn by animals, through the high grass, and in this I crept along on my hands and knees. It was very wet and muddy. My boots were full of cold water. After ten minutes I came to a little point running out into the pond, and one young birch growing on it. Under this I crawled raised up on my knees, and looked over the top of the grass and bushes. There, in a shallow bay, standing knee-deep in the water, and rooting up lily-stems with his long, pendulous nose, was the biggest and blackest bull moose in the world. As he pulled the roots from the mud and tossed up his dripping head, I could see his horns, four and a half feet across. If they were an inch, and the palms shining like tea trays in the moonlight, I tell you, old Silverhorns was the most beautiful moose I ever saw. But he was too far away to shoot by that dim light. So I left my birch tree and crawled along toward the edge of the bay. A breath of wind must have blown across me to him, for he lifted his head, sniffed, grunted, came out of the water, and began to trot slowly along the trail, which led past me. I knelt on one knee and tried to take aim. A black cloud came over the moon. I couldn't see either of the sights on my gun. But when the bull came opposite to me, about fifty yards off, I blazed away at a venture. He reared straight up on his hind legs. It looked as if he rose fifty feet in the air, wheeled, and went walloping along the trail, around the south end of the pond, in a minute he was lost in the woods. Goodbye, Silverhorns. You tell it well, said McLeod, reaching out for a fresh cigar. Figs, 
I doubt Sir Walter himself could prove upon it, and say that the way you did didn't murder poor Silverhorns. It's a tale I'm joyful to be hearing. Wait a bit, Hemingway answered. That's not the end. By a long shot. There's worse to follow. The next morning we returned to the pond at daybreak, for MacDonald thought I might have wounded the moose. We searched the bushes in the woods where he went out very carefully, looking for drops of blood on his trail. Blood, groaned the engineer. Heck, mon, wouldn't ye come night to make it great? To find the beast's red blood splashed over the leaves, and to think of him staggering on through the forest, dripping the heart out of him at every step. But we didn't find any blood, you old sentimentalist. That shot in the dark was a clear miss. We followed the trail by broken bushes and footprints for a half a mile, and then came back to the pond and turned to go down through the edge of the woods to the camp. It was just after sunrise, and I was walking a few yards ahead, MacDonald next and Billy last. Suddenly, he looked around to the left, gave a low whistle and dropped to the ground, pointing northward, away at the head of the pond, beyond the glitter of the sun on the water, the big blackness of Silverhorn's head and body was pushing through the bushes, dripping with dew. Each of us flopped down behind the nearest shrub as if we had been playing squat tag. Billy had the birch bark horn with him, and he gave a low, short call. Silverhorns heard it, turned, and came parading slowly down the western shore, now on the sand beach, now splashing through the shallow water. We could see every motion and hear every sound. He marched along as if he owned the earth, swinging his huge head from side to side and grunting at each step. You see, we were just at the edge of the woods, strung along the south end of the pond, Billy nearest to the west shore, where the moose was walking. MacDonald next, and I last, perhaps fifteen yards further to the east. It was a fool arrangement, but we had no time to think about it. MacDonald whispered that I should wait until the moose came close to us and stop. So I waited. I could see him swagger along the sand and step out around the fallen logs. The nearer he came, the bigger his horns looked. Each palm was like an enormous silver fish fork with twenty prongs. Then he went out of my sight for a minute as he passed around a little bay in the southwest corner, getting nearer and nearer to Billy. But I could still hear him step, distinctively, slosh, 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 thud, thud, thud. The grunting had stopped. Closer came the sound, until it was directly behind the dense green branches of fallen balsam tree, not twenty feet away from Billy. Then suddenly the noise ceased. I could hear my own heart pounding in my ribs, but nothing else. And of Silverhorns, not hair nor hide was visible. It looked as if he must be a boojum, and had the power to softly and silently vanish away. Billy and Mac were beckoning me fiercely and pointing to the green balsam top. 
I gripped my rifle and started to creep toward them. A little twig about as thick as the tip of a fishing rod cracked under my knee. There was a terrible crash behind the balsam, a plunging through the underbrush and a rattle among the branches, a lumbering gallop up the hill through the forest, and Silverhorns was gone into the invisible. He had stopped behind the tree because he smelled the grease on Billy's boots. He had stood there, hesitating. Billy and Mac could see his shoulder and his side through a gap in the branches, a dead easy shot, but so far as I was concerned, he might as well have been in Alaska. I told you that the way we had placed ourselves was a fool arrangement, but MacDonald would not say anything about it except to express his conviction that it was not predestined we should get that moose. Ah, Dina King, we Rob had say much theology bow him, commented McLeod. But no, I'm a-thinkin' ye went back to ye main camp, and ye poor Silverhorns lived out his life. Not much did we, for now we knew that he wasn't badly frightened by the adventure of the night before, and that we might get another chance in him. In the afternoon it began to rain, and it poured for forty-eight hours. We covered in our shelter before a smoky fire and lived on short rations of crackers and dried prunes. It was a hungry time, but wasn't it a slather of food at the main camp? On a fool would ken down enough to go down to the river and take a good fill-up. But that wasn't what we wanted. It was silver horns. Billy and I made McDonald's stay, and Thursday afternoon, when the clouds broke away, we went back to the pond to have a last try at turning our luck. This time we took our positions with great care, among some small spruce trees on a joint that ran out from the southern meadow. It was farther to the west. MacDonald, who had also brought his gun, was next. Billy, with the horn, was further away from the point where he thought the moose would come out, so Billy began to call. Very beautifully. The long echoes went bellowing over the hills. The afternoon was still, and the setting sun shone through a light mist, like a ball of red gold. Fifteen minutes after sundown, Silverhorns gave a loud bawl from the western ridge and came crashing down the hill. He cleared the bushes two or three hundred yards to our left with a leap, rushing into the pond, and came wading around the south shore toward us. The bank here was rather high, perhaps four feet above the water, and the mud below it was deep, so that the moose sank into his knees. I give you my word, as he came along there was nothing visible to Mac and me except his ears and his horns. Everything else was hidden below the bank. There were we, behind our little spruce trees, and there was Silverhorns, standing still now, right in front of us, and all that Mac and I could see were those big ears and those magnificent antlers, appearing and disappearing as he lifted and lowered his head. It was a fearful situation, and there was Billy, with his birch bark hooter, forty yards below us. He could see the moose perfectly. I looked at Mac, and he looked at me. 
he whispered something about predestination. Then Billy lifted his horn and made ready to give a little soft grunt to see if the moose wouldn't move along a bit just to oblige us. But as Billy drew in his breath, one of those fool flies that always blunder around a man's face flew straight down his throat. Instead of a call, he burst out with a furious, strangling fit of coughing. The moose gave a snort and a wild leap in the water and galloped away under the bank the way he had come. Mac and I both fired as vanishing ears and horns, but of course, all aboard! The conductor's shout rang along the platform. Line's clear, exclaimed McLeod, rising. No, we'll be off. Will you stay here with me, or gang away back to your bed? Here, answered Hemingway, not budging from his place on the bench. The bell clanged, and the powerful machine puffed on its flaring way through the night. Faster and faster came the big, explosive breaths until they blended in a long, steady roar, and the train was sweeping northward at forty miles an hour. The clouds had broken. The night had grown colder. The gibbous moon gleamed over the vast and solitary landscape. It was a different thing to Hemingway riding in the cab of a locomotive from an ordinary journey in the passenger car or an unconscious ride in the sleeper. Here, he was at the crest of motion, at the forefront of speed, and the quivering engine with the long train behind it seemed like a living creature leaping along the track. It responded to the labor of the fireman and the touch of the engineer almost as if it could think and feel. Its pace quickened without a jar, its great eye piercing the silvery space of moonlight with a shaft of blazing yellow. The rails sang before it and trembled behind it. It was an obedient and joyful monster, conquering distance and devouring darkness. On the wide, level barrens beyond the Tetegauche River, the locomotive reached its best speed, purring like a huge cat and running smoothly. McLeod leaned back on his bench with a satisfied air. She's doing fine enough, said he. I'm a thinking whilst, oh, your old Silverhorn, where is he now? Away up in Hagen Pine, galling around in the licht of the moon with the lady moose, and the gladness just bubbling in his heart. Were you not sorry he's leaving yet, are you, Doug? Well, answered Hemingway slowly, between the puffs of his pipe, I can't say I'm sorry that he's alive and happy, though I'm not glad that I lost him. But he did his best, the old rogue, and he played a good game, and he deserved to win. Where is he now? Nobody can tell. He was traveling like a streak of lightning when I saw him last. By this time, he may be... What's yon? cried McLeod, springing up. Far ahead, in the narrow apex of the converging rails, stood a black form, motionless, mysterious. McLeod grasped the whistle cord. The black form loomed higher in the moonlight and was clearly silhouetted against the horizon, a big moose standing across the track. They could see his grotesque head, his shadowy horns, high, sloping shoulders, 
The engineer pulled the corn. The whistle shrieked loud and long. The moose turned and faced the sound. The glaring of the headlights fascinated, challenged, angered him. There he stood, defiant, front feet planted wide apart, head lowered, gazing steadily at the unknown enemy that was rushing toward him. He was the monarch of the wilderness. There was nothing in the world that he feared except those strange-smelling little beasts on two legs who crept around through the woods and shot fire out of sticks. This was surely not one of those treacherous animals, but some strange new creature that dared to shriek at him and try to drive him out of its way. He would not move. He would try his strength against the big, yellow-eyed beast. Losh! cried McLeod. He gone to fetch us. And he dropped the cord, grabbing the levers, and threw the steam off and the brake on hard. The heavy train slid, groaning and jarring along the track. The moose never stirred. The fire smoldered in his small, narrow eyes. His black crest was bristling. As the engine bore down upon him, not a rod away, he reared high in the air, his antlers flashing in the blaze, and struck full at the headlight with his immense forefoot. There was a shattering of glass, a crash, a heavy shock. The train slid on through the darkness, lit only by the moon, thirty or forty yards beyond. The momentum was exhausted, and the engine came to a stop. Hemingway and McLeod clambered down and ran back, with the other trainmen and a few of the passengers. The moose was lying in the ditch beside the track, stone dead and frightfully shattered, but this great head and the vast spreading antlers were intact. Silverhorns, I'm sure, said McLeod, bending over him. He was crossing Fred and Nipisit to the jacket, but he didn't get across. Well, dude, are you glad? You had killed your first moose. Yes, said Hemingway. It's my first moose. But it's your first moose, too. And I think it's our last. Ye gads. What a fighter. End of chapter one. Recorded by Monty Spanero.